So glad to see you guys here uh, this morning. Uh, so we're jumping into Romans 9. Um, and let me tell you, we've been in this series called How to Get Unstuck. And today we are looking at the Apostle Paul, who is kind of uh, going through some really, really difficult things right now. And Paul is struggling with the fact that many people that he knows and loves as he preaches the gospel are not receiving the gospel. So let me just ask you the question, what do you do when people in your life don't receive the gospel? When they, and you've preached it, you've told it, you've lived it, you've done everything that you could possibly do, and yet for some reason they don't seem to respond. Well, I was the first person actually in my family to become a Christian. And so having not grown up in a Christian world, it became very important to me that when I did become a follower of Jesus, that the people that I loved and knew, not because I have like some driven force behind me that says, unless I get people saved, they're all going to go to hell. That's not, that's not the motivation behind the heart for what I do. That might be a reality back there, but the heart is I want people to know Jesus. I want them to know the blessing of having a relationship with him, the peace that can come from walking in a relationship with God. And so the apostle Paul wants the same thing. And when I became a Christian, I started telling everybody that I knew. My friends, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers, my mom was the first to become a Christian and, uh, after me. And uh, it was probably only a matter of months before she became a Christian. And then my brother came after that many years later and he pulled me aside and he said, listen, I'm making this decision today to become a follower of Jesus because I've seen what God's done in your life. So people are watching you, by the way. They, they are li- they're not watching for perfection. They're not, walk- they're not watching for moralism. What they're watching for is a humble service of Jesus. And so he says, the reason why I'm giving my life today is because I believe that God has done amazing work in you and I want him to do the same thing in me. And now he's the greatest father that I've ever seen in my life. He's just the most amazing dad and the most amazing man. And if you grew up the way that we did, you would think that that would be an impossibility, but God can do anything from terrible beginnings. And also then at the very last part of my father's life in the 72nd year of his life, in the sixth or seventh month of, his, of, of, his, of the end of his life, he, he gave his life to Jesus. And so we've seen what Paul's talking about here. We've been on both sides of it in our family. I've seen my family and I've struggled with the fact that they didn't know Christ. The question for you is, are you urgently seeking this? And is this something that holds you and holds your attention and your affection? Because the apostle Paul is just riddled with this right now. He is struggling right now. Let's jump into the text. Romans chapter nine, verse one, and it starts like this. He's like, guys, I, I'm talking to you right now. I want to speak the truth to you in Christ. I'm not lying, and my conscience confers it through the Holy Spirit. When I've looked at myself, when I've examined myself and my motivations for this, the Holy Spirit says, yes, I'm on track with this. And he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So this right here would be what we would call modern day depression. I have depression and I am unceasing anguish. And what that means, it's consistent. It is the quality of the depression. It's not a little bit, because you and I know there's differences in depression, right? Like you might come home to a friend or a, a family member or a husband or a wife and you go, how was your day? And you go, oh, I'm so depressed. I didn't make my numbers today. And you're like, that's not really a big deal. It's like a little bit of a deal. But then there's somebody else you might say, I'm depressed and it actually means something significant, right? It has has implications for their life. And Paul's talking about this kind of anguish. It is an unceasing, it's an unrelenting, it never gives up. It's with him all the time. And it's not about some personal problem that he has. It's not about him not accomplishing his goals. It's not about him not doing um, his life, not working out the way that he wants it to, except for the fact that people that he's preaching to are not turning. The people that he's preaching to are not becoming followers of Jesus. And this really plagues him. And I look at that and I think to myself, that's incredible. Take a look at verse three. 
For I wish, this is how bad it is for him, right? I wish that I myself were cut, were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he says, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off. That is incredible. I mean, what he's basically saying is if it came down to a choice between me and all the people that I love, my family, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, the people that I am invested in, if it came down to me choosing whether I could go to heaven or they could go to heaven, I want them to go to heaven. I would be cut off from God if that could happen. If I could sacrifice myself for them, I would do that. It shows the heart of the apostle Paul. He cares deeply for the people of Israel. He cares deeply for the people around him. And he wants the blessing of Jesus to be in the life of the people. But what you need to recognize is that all the people his people, the Jewish people, when Jesus walked around, some of them became followers of Jesus. They recognized him as Messiah. And in recognizing him as Messiah, their whole life was changed. Their life here and their eternity in heaven was changed. Absolutely, completely transformed. And then there were many who stood around listening to the exact same thing and absolutely walked right past it. And by the way, if you're here today, and you're not super religious and you're just trying to figure it out. You got some like questions about it. You don't know where you're at right now. This is the deal. Like for us, our heart is that we want you to know Jesus because it's another notch on our belt. No, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is that you haven't come into a connection with God. Now, one of the challenges that Paul was dealing with is a similar challenge that we have today. And it's this, the apostle Paul lived in a world where people who were Jewish believed that just because they were Jewish, they actually, that made them the, the, the people of God. Let me show you this in verse four. He says, for I wish I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Verse four, theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, covenants, law, temple, worship, and promises. So let's take a look at these things. In the Old Testament, God chose a single nation from all the nations in the world. And he doesn't tell us why. He just chooses them. It's in his prerogative to do so. He makes the decision. I'm going to invest in this one people and I will be their God and they will be my people. And what we see in Old Testament pattern, which is funny because it's a pattern in our own lives. It's a pattern like this. He blesses and then they forget him and then they rebel against him. And then he brings calamity into their life for a season and then they repent and then he blesses them. And over and over and over again, this pattern shows up in the Old Testament, it shows up in our life too. Every once in a while, everything seems to be going really well. And then we just get distracted and we veer off and we just begin to slip. And it's not because we intentionally wanted to walk away from God, but something happened where we just got distracted and he became less important. Instead of being first place, he became second place. And then when he's second place, by the way, he'll always be third place. And when he's third place, he'll be fifth place eventually. And that's what happens to us. And that happens here. But God chose this nation of Israel. And he said, you guys are going to be my sons and daughters. I'm gonna treat you differently than I treat everybody else in the whole world. I'm gonna show you my glory. I'm gonna reveal myself to you in ways that no one else, I'm gonna reveal, I'm, I'm reveal myself to you in no ways, in ways that no one else in the world will see. And then I'm gonna give you some agreements between us, covenants. I'll be your people. You'll be my God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Here we go. And then you're gonna get the law. Remember at this time when the giving of the law was given the 10 commandments, nobody knew what God was like because he didn't walk among people. And just like today, if we didn't have what we have in the Bible, we'd be looking at God going, well, I think he's nice. I think he's okay. Sometimes it seems like he does bad things because there's bad things in the, in the world. But in the giving of the law, it showed the people of God and the Jews, it showed them 
I'm, not, I'm, truth, I'm a truth teller. I don't lie. I don't steal. I won't cheat on you. I won't commit adultery against you. When I promise you something, I will deliver on my promises. I will not take from you things unnecessarily. I'm not going to murder you randomly. And these were not things that in the ancient world were givens based on the conceptions of God that people had. And then he says, not only that, but I'm going to give you a law that's going to show you what I look like morally. And now you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you to build a temple for me and I'm going to dwell there. I'm going to come out of heaven and I'm going to dwell right there on earth with you. And people from all over the world can come and worship me. And by the way, I'm going to give you this promise. And this is where Paul spends most of his time today. And in this promise is where the problem for the Jewish people lie. And that's this, with all of these things, and I can see where they get there, with all these things, when by the time Jesus comes around, people are thinking to themselves, we're Jews, and so we're good. So we don't need to do anything else. We don't need to have a connection with God because I'm born Jewish, I'm already chosen. Everything's fine with me. I don't need to do anything else. And in that way, they begin to mess things up. But there's a promise, and it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when we rebelled against God and pushed him out of our life. This is what happened. He said, listen, I know you pushed me out of your life, but I love you, and I'm going to do something for you. So Eve, one day, one of your daughters, 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 down the road, will give birth to a son, and this son will crush the devil. And when he crushes the devil, he'll open eternal life to everyone who asks and everyone who desires to have it. It's just such an amazing thing that God would do that in the middle of all this rebellion. But here's what's cool, right? And we're going to talk about these three characters in a little while. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? These three guys, the line of Jesus. Now, if you go to your Bible right now and look in Matthew chapter 1, the first part of Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus, where you can trace back the line of Jesus. So what God did from the Garden of Eden all the way to about 2,000 years ago, and you know, moving, well, just to 2,000 years ago, was he guided the path of where God, Jesus, would be born through human history. And he chose certain families and elevated them and did this. And he watched, not only did he guide them, but he watched over them in such a way that nothing could touch them because God had blessed and made a promise that one day a son would be born. And that son, 2,000 years ago, was Jesus. And he opened eternal life to us. But people in the Jewish world were thinking to themselves, man, um, we got it made because we're just Jewish, right? And, and many of us think the same way. We think things because we're like, we live and work in a meritocracy. Listen, if you're a business owner, you, you got to work hard, man. You, you got you to be wise. You got to be smart. You got to do hard work to move ahead. It's just not that way in your spiritual life. It's just not that way in your spirit. We, we want to take that and transfer that here. What he's basically saying is, no, no, I'm orchestrating the circumstances of your life. I am populating your life with purpose, so while the Jews believed that they had to be Jewish in order to be right with God, we believe it's what we do that makes us right with God. And both of those things are wrong. God had another plan, something totally different. So Paul is saying, I mean, I just, I would give up my life for all those people that don't yet know Jesus. I love God so much. And that's the heart of the father to sacrifice in that way. So let's take a look at what Jesus says about that. John 15, verses 12 through 15 up on the screen. Look at this. He says this, my command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you. Now take a look at these first three words, love each other. I'll tell you, honestly, I really think a lot of people, most people are trying that. I really think most people are trying to love other people as best as they can. But that's the problem, <laughs> as best as we can, because that's not what he's asking us to do. He's not saying love each other the way you want to love them. He says, love each other as I have loved you. 
And the Bible teaches us that God loved us when we were at our worst, accepted us, received us in that moment, and we were transformed. Listen, listen. God's acceptance of you is not based upon your goodness, your background. It doesn't matter if you have a pastor in the family. It doesn't matter if you've got a great business, a great marriage, a great family, whatever. He's asking you to love the world the way he loved you, which is this. We start with where they're at. Don't come to somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and say, here are the five things that's wrong with your life right now. Here are the eight things that are going morally wrong with you. Hey, by the way, was that question, was that behavior that you just did right there that you're experiencing bad consequences for, was that helpful for you? That's dumb, you guys. We don't do that. We start with where they're at because that's what God did with us. He says, I want to come to where you are. He doesn't leave us there. We'll talk about that in a second. But we come and listen, most people that go through this kind of circumstance realize that when we're, when we're looking at this, this is what turns people off to our faith. We'll talk about that in a second. Love each other, not as I have loved you. But we know this. This should be common sense for you personally, because you've read the five love languages. You've seen it, right? The five love languages based on this idea that we all, mine, is, mine is words of affirmation. I think it's the easiest one to accomplish. It's simple. My wife, she's like, you are looking smoking in that cardigan today. And I'm like... Dang right I am. You know, I feel good. Like, I like, I'm like, that's awesome. I feel amazing. And I'll go on that for the rest of the day. Like, I'll be good. Hers is acts of service. I got to do all kinds of stuff for that. All she has to do is say something. It's amazing. But listen, what happens when you don't do that? Well, I learned this in my marriage. I'd walk past her and be like, honey, you are the greatest wife I've ever seen. She's like, do you do the dishes? You know, and I'm like, that's horrifying. I'm like, it took a long time for me to figure out that I couldn't love her the way I wanted to love her. I need to love her the way she needed to be loved. And one of the big reasons why people look at the church today is not because there's something wrong with what we believe, but it's how we act. We're not loving them the way that Jesus has loved us. And if we did love them in that way, then things would be different, right? We'd have a different kind of response. That, that passage, Jesus continues and he says this in verse 13, greater love has no one than this to lay one's life down for one's friends. What an amazing thing. That the very heart of love is sacrifice. And Jesus is foreshadowing right here the time, because it's not long after he says these words, that he's going to sacrifice his life for us, that he will lay down his life on the cross for his friends. And what is the definition of that? There's no greater love than that. That was his goal. And he says, not only is that my goal to do for you, my friends, and we know that we are his friends because we desire to do what he commands, right? In other words, not that we do it, but that our heart's desire is to do it. We're going to always walk in perfectly. And his, his goal for you is not to you know, try to be moralistically perfect. His goal for you is intimacy with him, And that intimacy with him then generates a new kind of living inside of you. We are morally different, not because we have to be or because there's a rule that says so, but because we've had an encounter with the greatest source of love that there is, and that is God himself. And now I respond differently morally in my life because I want to please him, because I want out of gratefulness to love him well. Greater love has no one than this, and that is to lay one's life down for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Verse 9, 6 says this. 
as we're talking to people who are far from God that are not listening to the gospel, Paul says, it's not as though God's word had failed. It's not as though God, those God, it's not as though God's word had failed. What does he mean by that? He means that when people look, and by the way, if you're here today and you're not, you're not fully committed, you're not dialed into Jesus, you're trying to make sense of it all. One of the things that you haven't done, and just be intellectually honest right now, because I didn't do it either, but you haven't actually read through the entire Bible and examined it and studied it and found it wanting. Because that's 0.025% of the population that's done that. What you've actually done is had bad experiences with Christians. And that's the reason why often you don't want to take your first step toward Jesus. You're like, because you think to yourself, and it makes sense, if these people are this way, I don't want to be this way. Maybe I don't believe the thing that they believe. But Paul says, you know, it's not as though God's word has failed. It hasn't. It's just that we've never focused on it. And you know why Christians, why Christians kind of act that way in culture? It's because we don't focus on it either. I had, I've had like, I don't know, like seven or eight weird comments in like the last maybe 10 weeks where people have come up to me and they've said, it's so good to come to a church where you read through the Bible and you teach through the Bible. I'm like, weird. That's like going to a gym and being like, oh my God, you have weights here? It's like going to a restaurant and going, I exchanged money and you got food? That's ridiculous. It's, it's what we do, Christians. It's what the church is about. If, if we're not doing this, what are we doing? Do you know what you're doing? You're listening to a motivational speaker. You're listening to a motivational speaker. That's all you're doing. And by the way, what lets the motivational speaker be any smarter than you? Nothing. The only credibility and authority that we have is that we focus on the word of God. And we place that in front of everybody. It's not as though God's word has failed. It hasn't failed. What we believe is not being rejected by the culture. There are tiny parts of what we believe occasionally that do that. But a lot of that even has to do with the way that we teach it. And I'm about to teach you something in a, little, in a few minutes that's going to be very hard for some of you. And I think it's going to make sense because there is sense to what God does. But it's not as though God's word has failed. In fact, verse, the second part of verse 6 says this. And he begins to build a Jewish argument because he, remember, he's trying to counteract the idea. He's trying to counteract the idea that you're born Jewish and as a result of being born Jewish, you go to heaven. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So what does that mean? So he's using Israel here as a proxy for the people of God. So let me read it that way. For not all who are born Jewish are the people of God. That's what he's saying. Okay, so not everybody born Jewish are actually the people of God. And that should make sense to us because that's kind of how we are today. Now, how many of you were born, not born, well, maybe born or raised Catholic? Raise your hands. Raise your hand. Like raise them real high because I really want to see the percentage. Oh, that's amazing. In almost all of our services, it's been almost between 30 and 50% of people who have been raised as Catholics. So the Lord be with you all. And... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Okay, come on. Where was my and also with you? Come on. Gee whiz. They're like, we're not giving it back. Okay. So, 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 I, so, so here's, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that just because you go and you do religious things, like if you were Catholic, here's what you, went, here's what you did. 
Like you were baptized as an infant, right? You were sprinkled and you, went, you did the baptism thing. And then you went at some point in your teens through confirmation or what you call catechesis or catechism. And then you went through and you learned about the church. And then you went and you had your first communion. And it was a process. And it's not a bad process. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you can do and what many have done is you can go through the entire process and never actually be connected to God. And that's not a Catholic problem. It is a Christian problem. So not all Catholics are Christians. Not all Jews are part of Israel. Not all Baptists are Christians. In fact, most are not. But no, I'm just, I'm joking. I'm kidding. Just a joke. I love you Baptist people. I'm just kidding. Not all drink as much as Episcopalians. I'm just saying, it's true, right? You know. And not all non-denominational attendees are Christians. His point is that backgrounds and religion as a whole are not the point. The point is that we have intimacy and connection with the Father. You, you can be in a marriage and do all the right things, but yet have your heart far from the other person. And our relationship with God is very much like a marriage. It's based upon mutual connection. So here in verse seven, he's gonna build an argument. Just listen, if you will, to these three verses with me, and then I'll explain them. He says this, on the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent, not those who are born Jewish, who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise. The children of the promise. The promise is the promise from the Garden of Eden. The Proto-Evangelion, the first preaching of the gospel. I'm sending someone into the world. And he's now connecting those who are God's people to the connection of the promise. If you follow the promise, you are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So there, are these, there is this line through which Jesus comes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So Abraham's the grandfather, Isaac is the son, and Jacob is the grandson. Jacob has a, a their mother was Rebecca. And Rebecca has these two, these, these, these twins, right? And these, these two sons. One is Jacob and the other is Esau. Esau is the firstborn, but Jacob comes out holding the heel of his brother, right? As they, are, as they come out of the birth canal. And so what God does is he comes and he says, hey, listen, I'm making a decision unilaterally. I'm going to choose to change the birth order here. Just like in feudal Europe, when a king would pass down, whether it's the king of Spain or England or France, would pass down the, king, uh, the kingship, right? Um, it's the firstborn son that inherits the kingdom, right? It's the firstborn son that gets all the rights of the family, all the money, all the possessions, the spiritual heritage, all of that. Goes, and it doesn't matter if the firstborn is smarter than the secondborn, uh, better, more moral or whatever, it just goes to the firstborn. So what God does here, is he says, listen, I'm going to flip this upside down. Esau, you're going to serve your brother Jacob. Jacob, I'm going to elevate you. And he does so for the purpose that we're going to see in a moment. Here we go. Verse 11, 12, and 13. Look at what it says. Yet before the twins, before the twins, Jacob and Esau were born or had done anything good or bad. So while they were in, their, in the womb and hadn't made any decisions of their own, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, next, 12, not by works, in other words, not by what Jacob or Esau did, good or bad, right? But by him who calls, by God himself, 
She was told, Rebecca was told, the older one, Esau, will serve the younger, 13. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those are some crazy words when you first read them, because when you read them, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, he's literally hating someone from birth here. Well, just so you know, and put your hearts at rest. Again, this is something that if you don't know the Bible, you can read it at face value and go, man, that's, that's terrible. But it's actually just a literary device, and I'll show you where it's used again, that Jesus uses it actually. It's a literary device to talk about contrast. So he's contrasting the fact that Esau was supposed to be the leader and he's been rejected as the leader and Jacob has been elevated to the leadership of the family. So he's saying, I love this guy, not so much this guy, right? It's exaggeration. Jesus does it here in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, he's talking about if you wanna be a disciple of mine, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So if you read this and you're not paying attention to this, you might think, wow, in order for me to be a follower of Jesus, I have to hate my mom. And some of you are like, cool, check. You know, um, so, so, so if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, here's, here's what we know, because what you don't ever do in the Bible is take one verse and make it everything. Okay, so what we know in the Bible is that we're supposed to honor our father and mother. That with my wife, I'm not supposed to hate her. I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church, right? And so all of that is showing contradiction here, right here. But it's not really contradiction. This is contrast. And the contrast here is if you're gonna enter into a relationship with Jesus, when you're setting your priorities, it can't be your family and then Jesus. It has to be Jesus here and everything else way down here. And so in comparison, Jesus is saying, compared to your family, you got to love me so much that it's like, those guys don't even matter. But as we know, the closer you get to Jesus and the more you love him well, you'll love your wife well. You'll love your husband well. You'll honor your children and be an example to them. So these are not actually, it's just a, it's a literary device that's, that use, that's used for contrast. Back to verse 11. Take a look at this. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that, here's where it gets hard, God's purpose in election might stand. So this word right here, election, has caused many Christians consternation over the years. And here's the reason why. The very basic definition of this election is God chooses who goes to heaven. Okay. So let's talk about that for a second. Because immediately, if you're like me, I'm like, nope. Nope. That cannot be the way that it means. That's not an accurate interpretation of the Bible. That cannot be what the Bible says. And it says it over and over and over and over in different places, okay? And so I was frustrated by that because I'm like, well, what about those people who can't make that choice and blah, blah, blah? Let's let's take a look at it. All right. So you're either, and I believe that this shows that God's purpose is infused to the creation, including your life. That your whole life, God is weaving his purposes through your life. I believe he's active in the world today. I don't think he just, like the clockmaker, set things in motion, stepped back from the universe and is waiting to see how things unfold. I believe he's actually actively involved in your life in the good and in the bad. So if God's making those choices, then God, and this is why we came into this sermon with the previous three weeks talking about the fact that God works all things for your good and that God is for you in every way. Because if this person is in charge and he's not a good person, we should all be terrified. But let me give you something that's a little bit different. And this is the way most people think, but they just haven't thought through the implications of it. So it's really not that God makes a decision for us, but really what it is, is it's just me. I get to make the choice. 
Well, I want you to think about that for a second. Just go a little bit beneath the surface. Imagine one day a bunch of missionaries come to your neighborhood and they're really good missionaries. I mean, they're not weird. They're not strange. They're, they're, they're able to communicate the gospel in compelling and powerful ways. And your neighbor gets saved and the guy across the street gets saved and the person next to you gets saved. And on their way to you, the missionary gets sick to his stomach and says, I gotta go home. And so he goes home and they never come back to that neighborhood. They just skip your house. And somehow, because that missionary didn't preach the gospel to you in that moment, you missed the opportunity to receive Christ. And as a result, you spend eternity apart from God. How horrible. How random. I mean, either the world is based on chance or it's not based on chance. And so, so, so think about it like this. If that's not true, then God purposes his will through all things. And he is working for the good of all people. Watch this. And he is orchestrating the salvation of many. Listen, when I get up here sometimes and we have those weekends where I'm like, close your eyes and I'm gonna talk to you and we're gonna have a personal conversation and I want you to cross the line. I do that and I know confidently people are gonna respond because I'm good. No, because God is at work. And he's orchestrating the circumstances for people to have their hearts and their lives changed. But it's not just that. It's not just the, the missionary who, who comes short. It's every other circumstance in our life. I want you to think about a couple of other things here. I want you to think about the person who grows up in a part of the country uh, or a part of the world that um, would not have any access to Christ. I want you to think about places like Iran. There's, there are not a missionaries. There are no missionaries in Iran like that. The Christians that live in Iran, which are like one half of 1% of the population, are required by Sharia law never to speak about God in any way, never to speak about Jesus in any way. So how do they become Christians? Well, if it's true that I'm just the person that gets to make the choice and God is not involved in that choice in any way, shape, or form, then, then I'm doomed. I'm doomed because I'm born to a country that doesn't have Jesus, and I'm born to a family that's not interested in God. But I want you to think about your pastor's story. We were those people. We didn't have Jesus. And he came and dove right into my family and plucked me out of it. I want you to think about this for a second. It's not good that random circumstances can actually be the way in which the world works. And you go, I get it, Pastor Mike, but that feels like you're, you're messing with my freedom, my choice. I want you to think about this. It's called libertarian freedom. You don't have it, but you believe you do. Libertarian freedom is the idea that I get to make any choice I want. We don't have that choice. When I was a kid, I was a hair model for Vita El Sassoon. I don't have that choice anymore. I, I'm like, I want to go back and do it again. No, I can't. It doesn't work that way. Listen, raise your hand if you're good at math. Raise them up. Really good. This is the highest concentration of mathematicians that we've seen so far. Well, to, well done, you guys. STEM, STEM. Man, that's great. So, but, but listen, if you're not like that, I'm not talking about this Elon Musk stuff that we're doing now, but I'm talking about old NASA if you're not good at math, they're not gonna put you on a rocket and send you into space. They're just not. You go, but I wanna go to space. I've always wanted, since I was this tall, I wanted to go to space. They're not gonna put you on a rocket if you can't do math and just send you sailing into the universe forever as you miss your destination. You're like, I only got to pre-algebra. They're like, you're screwed, right? Like, like, just, like that's not what they're gonna do. You don't have the freedom to do that. If you're not a super fast runner, you're not going to the Olympics, no matter how much you want to. We are constantly limited by our biology. We're limited by our sociology and socialization. We're limited by all kinds of things, and we don't feel like we're limited. What we see is that God is orchestrating a set of circumstances in the world 
where his will is weaving through the tapestry of history. Just as it started with Adam and Eve and made its way all the way to the time of Jesus, it now makes its way until Jesus returns again. And it's not a limitation of your freedom. Here's here's what Romans this week and next week are about. It's not about our freedom. It's about the freedom of God to do what God wills to do with his creation. We don't just serve a best friend, God. We serve a high king who has the authority and the power to do whatever he wills with his creation. And that's comforting because he's a good father and he's not desiring to rip us apart and tear us down. Listen, listen, listen. What this means for you if you're a Christian, it means that that we don't ever walk around in arrogance. You know, I don't know why I was chosen. I was promiscuous, drunk, and foolish. And in one blink of an eye, he said, I'm changing everything about you. If it were up to me, that never would have happened. I don't run my life that way. And Jesus changed it in the blink of an eye. It's the one question I had. Virgin birth, I'm good. Miracles, I'm fine. This, I don't get It's the one question I want to get to heaven and go, why me? Just like Israel, why Israel? Out of all the nations of the earth, did you pour your glory into them? But he did. And that leads to you and me never walking around in arrogance and thinking that we're smarter or walking around going, I don't think those people get it because they're not smart. No, no, you were chosen. And he poured his life into you. And it changed everything about the way you think and feel. And so if you're sitting here in the room right now, you're going, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. Is that me? Like, am I good? Am I chosen? Well, first of all, as Christians, we treat everybody in the entire planet like they are chosen until they close their eyes saying, I reject Jesus. Because we don't know. The thief on the cross, the last two minutes of his life. My father, the last six months of his life after 72 years of being a horrifying man. God changes things. And so we never walk around arrogant, but also you never walk around closed out either. If you're in the room right now and you're thinking to yourself, man, I just, I want this and I don't know if I'm chosen. If you want it, you're chosen. If you desire it, it's because God has already begun a good work inside of you. And your job now is to press in to seek him, not to do a bunch of religious things, not to follow through and do this. I come to church, I do this, I do this. No, no, no. It's to have connection with him like you have with someone romantically. There is a kind of intimacy that comes when I say, I want all of you. I'm gonna be willing to give everything that I have for you. The apostle Paul, give my life just so that my friends will know Jesus. I'll give everything. So start where you are. If you feel like you're on the outside and you want to be on the inside, you're good. If you're on the outside and you're like, I don't care, then you're good too because you're making the choice that you want. But God is orchestrating through the tapestry of life, his will, his purpose, and his way. Our job is just to connect to that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now with acknowledgement in our hearts that it's not anything that we've done, both good or bad, or it's pedigree or the background or anything like that. It is simply because you have loved us. 
You loved us when we were sinners. You loved us when we were foolish. Sometimes God, even as Christians now, you love us in the middle of all of that foolishness. But you never walked away. When we were at our worst, you were there. You were the only one who loves us unconditionally. One that has mercy for us every morning because we need it so desperately. So Father, let our hearts burn like Paul's burned for the people around him. Not because we're afraid of eternal consequences, but because we want to bless people's lives. We want them to walk in beauty and goodness in a story that has been recreated. But God, we can't do that alone. We do that with you. So we ask that you pour your life into our families. Pour your life into our friends. And Lord, we will speak your words to them. We'll point them to the scriptures because your word has never failed us. It is always hope and it is always healing. May we too be that representation to the world. It's in your name we pray, amen.